Many of you know that I have a brother on Vancouver Island. He and his wife are doing a cross-country tour this summer, and they visited me on their way east in July, and I also got to see them this past week as they returned to the west. They have three kids now in their 30s, but when they were little, the distance made it challenging for me to get to know them. So if I went out to BC, I really tried to spend time with the kids doing things with them. I remember one trip when the twins would have been about four years old. We were playing some matching card game, and as the game unfolded, I became increasingly uneasy because one of them was getting far more pairs than the other. I was anticipating an exuberant celebration of a lopsided win by the one and tearful despair over a loss from the other. But as the final card was played, Lee jumped up, flung out his arms, and said to his twin, Look, I have seven pairs, and you have two pairs. We both win! They both happily laughed and were ready to start a new game. It was remarkable to me and still sticks in my mind all these years later. To be so secure in the relationship that they could just enjoy playing together without having to compare or compete. For me, it was actually a nice picture of humility. There was no self-satisfied bragging by the winner, nor self-critical dejection in the loser, but just a self-forgetful joy in the moment. Last week, Aaron launched a new series for us with the message titled, I think he, Jesus, has something to say. I think he has something to say. He pointed out that many of us come from backgrounds that encouraged us to believe in Jesus, to trust him for salvation so that we could be sure we would go to heaven when we die. But there can be a risk for us if that's all that our faith means. Jesus wants us to believe in him, but he also wants us to believe him, to take seriously the things he said and to put them into practice in our lives. So for five weeks, we are going to look at what Jesus said. The things that he said when he wasn't responding to a question or or to an accusation, but when he was saying what he wanted to say, when he got to set the agenda. Five topics that he not only spoke about, but that are recorded by more than one of his biographers, and topics that he emphasized by creating parables to illustrate them. And finally, topics, traits, that he consistently demonstrated in his life and ministry and in his crucifixion and death. Today we're looking at the first of the five It's one that Jesus spoke of often, but in contemporary life, it's actually pretty countercultural, and because of that, it's often misunderstood. It is humility. Jesus actually created several parables and metaphors to try and communicate what he meant by humility. Here's how Luke records one of them. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed these things with reference to himself. God, I give you thanks that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far away, did not want even to raise his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than that one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think Jesus was actually having a bit of fun here, drawing such an extreme contrast between the religious man and the tax collector. When he describes how the Pharisee prayed, the Greek is apparently not entirely clear because it's variously translated, he prayed to himself, he prayed with himself, he prayed about himself, and even he prayed in honor of himself. But one thing is clear, it's all about him. He is the center of his universe. And like most of us, at least on our bad days, he bolsters that center, that citadel of self, by comparing himself and competing with others. It's completely obvious to him that he is so much better than the bad people around him. You know, the ones who sleep around tailgate when driving, have out-of-control kids, and who don't sort their recycling. And he's certainly better than that guy over there who works for the CRA. Oh, oh right, we're in first century Palestine, so not the CRA, but still a tax collector. And our Pharisee parades his goodness by citing the visible things he does as part of his religious practice. He fasts and tithes. I will note that neither of those are in the Ten Commandments, nor are they very directly related to the two great commandments, to love God and love people. Fasting and tithing, why would he pick those two as signs of his righteousness? Because he could make them obvious and be admired for them. Remember, it is all about him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say not to do them, fasting and tithing, but he does warn against making a show of doing them. For example, he says, When you fast, don't make it obvious like the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. And he decries the exaggerated generosity of those who throw the coins for their tithe into the brass treasury with such force that the sound echoes around the temple. Uh, This Pharisee apparently wasn't there for that sermon. He ostentatiously paraded the outward trappings of his religious observance, but it's pretty clear that Jesus is not impressed with him. Jesus then turns his story to the tax collector. 
I wonder if he painted the Pharisee in such extreme and negative terms because he's about to make a tax collector, a tax collector, a hated collaborator with Rome, the hero of the story. Maybe the religious guy needed to be particularly obnoxious for the story to work at all for Jesus' audience. The tax collector is at the opposite extreme in that he does not presume that his behavior will merit the admiration of others. Because let's be honest, the Pharisee's performance is really aimed at the people who will hear and admire him. But in contrast, the tax collector is skulking in a corner, trying to avoid the notice of other people. It might even be tempting to see him as wallowing in the kind of self-loathing that isn't really humility. But the thing that struck me was that he came to the temple to pray in a public space. If he really was burying himself in a story where he was beyond redemption— a pathetic waste of oxygen. The temple is the last place he would have gone. Yet he comes to the temple. I think he comes not because he has confidence in himself, but because he has confidence that God will be merciful. Maybe he remembers from his childhood that the psalmist said, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so he comes, with no confidence in himself and his merit, but with a hopeful confidence in God. Jesus summarizes his little story by saying that it's those who humble themselves who will be exalted. Or in Eugene Peterson's translation, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. I like that. If you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. And so a tax collector, an unlikely hero, provides a lovely example of humility. But of course, Jesus himself even more completely and consistently embodies humility. Think of the arc of his life. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, talks about the humility Jesus showed in becoming human. He says, Jesus had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privilege. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. Jesus wasn't humble because he was weak. His humility was strength deliberately held in reserve. On the night of his arrest, when his disciples tried to use force to protect him, 
Jesus said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? He wasn't humble because he was weak. He was humble in his strength. In a culture where being a shameless braggart can be the door to political success, it's clear that humility is no longer given the value and prominence that Jesus gave it in his teachings. And so it can seem hard to get a grasp on it. In the story we looked at today, Jesus contrasts humility with the behavior of the grandstanding Pharisee. So then, is it humility to think that we're worthless, useless, wretched worms? At first glance, it might seem that that would be the opposite of a bragging arrogance. But it isn't. It isn't because that kind of self-loathing is still obsessed with self. It's an inner dialogue along the lines of, I'm not good enough. I can't do that thing as well as she can. I'll never be successful. I'm not thin enough. I'm not enough. That kind of mindset is obsessed with self every bit as much as the Pharisee was. And that is not humility. Humility isn't self-loathing. It's self-forgetful. It's far more like the twins whose card game I told you about at the beginning, ignoring the data on the score sheet that would label them as winner and loser and delighting in having fun together. Humility is self-forgetful. In a world that seems to constantly remind us of our shortcomings, in a world where an entire advertising industry seems determined to get us to negatively compare ourselves to some unachievable ideal, how can we ever hope to get there, to find any measure of self-forgetfulness? Jesus provides another illustration of humility, and that may be helpful for us here. Matthew records it in his biography of Jesus. The context is that the disciples are arguing over which of them will be greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Uh, Clearly, they hadn't progressed very long on the path of self-forgetful humility. Instead of giving them what they want, a league table of the disciples ranked in order of importance, Jesus brings a small child into their midst and asks them to consider the youngster. He says, So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure the kid threw his arms wide like my nephew and told the disciples that they all win, but it's still a helpful image. And I think the illustration of a child not only offers the joyful self-forgetfulness of children that children often embody, but it also invites us to think about the child in the context of a loving parent. Imagine this story. A young girl is playing in the woods behind her house on an unseasonably warm November afternoon. She's looking for a piece of moss, just the right texture, to use as a carpet in the little miniature house that she is building, and she walks further and further into the woods. But while the day is as warm as early fall, it is not nearly as long as early fall. 
and she suddenly finds herself in the dark, disoriented and terrified. She imagines a shadow passing in front of her, and then a twig snapping behind her. She's paralyzed by fear, but then, then she hears her dad's voice. He has come looking for her. He runs toward her with a bright flashlight, a warm blanket, and most importantly, his strong, strong arms to carry and protect her. In the circle of those arms, every fearful image melts away. As a brief aside, I hesitated to use that illustration because for some of you, a dad in your life was the monster in the woods. And yet I believe Jesus wants to redeem our notion of God as parent, as father, whether that notion was tarnished by a bad human example or by bad theology. Coming back to the girl in the woods, in our journey toward humility, it isn't the dangers of the forest that we fear, the threats to our bodily safety. It's the threats to our identity that we fear. We fear being judged, hurt, misunderstood, rejected. And so our temptation is to armor up, to adopt an external mask that exaggerates our assets and hides our weaknesses. And we may even take a quiet delight in noting the weaknesses and shortcomings of others, especially people we don't like, because it helps us feel superior. But sadly, that strategy intended to make us more secure leaves us more vulnerable. There is the constant fear that someone will see through us, find our weak spots, and despise us. Astra Taylor, who was chosen to deliver this year's Massey Lectures, aptly entitled her series, The Age of Insecurity. In the midst of that societal angst, in the midst of trying to follow Jesus' call to humility, yet knowing our urgent need for self-protection, how can we ever learn to be self-forgetful? It seems to me that for us, the solution is very much like for the girl in the woods. It lies in the strong, loving arms of the Father. When we come to know, to really know that God loves us, loves us unconditionally, the God who sees and knows us completely, all our failures and weaknesses and inconsistency, yet still loves us. We can stop striving, stop comparing and competing, and be at rest. When the little girl in the woods is scooped up into her father's arms, all her fears fade away. And when we really believe that God loves us, all our insecurities fade away too. The South African writer and pastor Andrew Murray describes the humility that comes from that kind of rest in God, and I want to close with his words. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me, and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord 
where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble.